Welcome to the Yellow Balloons podcast, a collection of teachings to help you navigate the transformational possibilities of a God-centered perspective. We pray these insights from scripture will inspire and encourage you. We begin this episode in Daniel 11. Surrounded by historical context and the mystery of prophecy, these verses have a lot to say to each of us and the decisions that we make in our daily life. God's hand and providence are essential and ever-present throughout the story of this world. Exploring Daniel helps us to see the role that we are called to play in regards to truth and humility. Today we're going to start with Daniel chapter 11 verse 5. We got into that there's going to be three more Persian generals and then there's going to be Alexander the Great. And now we're going to go into this whole period that I don't know that much about. But we're going to cover like 250 years of history all using pronouns. You know, it's not that unusual. I'll have a conversation with somebody and they'll say, well, they went to the store and they drove and they, and it, okay, start over. Don't use pronouns. You know, give me, use, use names and so I can understand what you're saying. Well, we're going to go like 200 years using all pronouns. And this, this is for the most part something that's already happened because we're going to make it through the period leading up to Antiochus IV, whose Epiphanes, who we saw in chapter 8, is the little horn that speaks pompous words and does the abomination of desolations. So we've already seen one abomination of desolations. And then we're going to jump 2,000 years and counting and see the next abomination of desolations that's still in our future, the one that's going to happen during the tribulation period. Now I'm going to go through all this history stuff, and I'm taking people's words for it that are historians that tell us what all this stuff is, looking in the rearview mirror saying, okay, we can look at history, now we know who the pronouns are and what events we're talking about here. And you're not going to remember it. I'm confident into that because I've studied this a ton and I don't remember it. I'm going to have to read some of this stuff. And so what's the point? Let's start with what's the point and then we'll we'll skim through this stuff and then hopefully say what's the point again and I'll cram it into the time we have. The point is God has history in control. His eyes on the sparrow. He knows the number of hairs on our head. And he told these people, all these things are going to happen. And unlike Revelation, where we look at it and say, man, there's some crazy stuff that's going to happen. I wonder what that is. And we said, right, Revelation is a real simple book if you go to it saying, okay, what am I supposed to do? Well, be a faithful witness. Don't fear death. Real simple. But if you go to it and say, what's going to happen? You can't understand what's going to happen. We now know through history, looking in the rearview mirror, what happened. And it's still hard to kind of figure out what happened of what we're going to go over. But this has happened, and so God's already predicted something that has happened. And we can look at this and say, well, you know, if God goes into this degree of detail to show that these things are going to happen, and they happen just like he said, we can be totally confident that all the things in Revelation are going to happen, and not one single thing is going to go outside his will. Everything's authorized. Okay? So I think that's the takeaway. Now... The first abomination of desolations happens in 167 B.C. Now, to go back to last week, we started in 323 B.C. That's when Alexander died. So Alexander, 331 B.C., he conquers the whole world, the known world at that time, conquers uh, Persia. And then he dies. He's eight years king, then he dies. Then what happens is there's this guy named Perdiccas who was the guy that became regent because Alexander's son is an infant. I mean, he's a baby. He's young. So they have a regent waiting for the son to grow up. When Alexander was asked who was to inherit his kingdom, he said the strongest. And this set up a series of wars between his successors called the Diadochi. And what they did is basically killed each other for the next decades. So Alexander, he was autocratic. If you crossed him, even if you had saved his life in battle, he'd have you killed. 
He was calculating. He took scientists with him everywhere he went. Remember, he was uh, tutored by Aristotle. He was conquering. He conquered the whole world. And he was ruthless. If you, if you got in his way, he would kill you. If you, you're his friend at that time, you know, you were fine. His generals picked that right up that theme up and kept going. And so Perdiccas, when he became the regent, they took the other generals and they made them satraps of different areas. So here's some of the main players. Antigonus was a Macedonian soldier who was a satrap of Asia Minor, Turkey. Antipater was the Macedonian general. They left in control of Macedonia when, when he went to conquer Persia. So he's the real loyal guy. So Antipater was the guy protecting Alexander's family so the son could grow up and be the king. But Unfortunately for Alexander's kid, when Antipater died in 319, so only four years after Alexander died, his son Cassander didn't have the affinity for the kids that his dad did, and he participated in murdering Alexander's kids. So there's no more heir to the throne other than the generals at this point. Cassander went in league with Lassimachus and Ptolemy. So Ptolemy is the general that got Egypt, and he's the, the regent of Egypt. He calls himself a regent or satrap or something like that all the way from 323 to 305. He only started calling himself a king in 305. So he goes almost 20 years as, I'm not sure if somebody's going to take this kingdom, put it back together so I'm going to hedge my bets. So that, that's how long it takes for people to start saying, okay, I'm in control now. So Ptolemy, Lysimachus, and Cassander, the guy that murdered the Alexander's kids, they go in league together to keep Antigonus from uniting the kingdom. Antigonus got real close. And Seleucus who ends up being a key character in this thing, he was a satrap over Babylonia. So Antigonus came, knocked him out, and Seleucus had to flee over to Ptolemy. And then Ptolemy and Lysimachus and Cassander go and they knock Antigonus off, and only then does Seleucus get to go back to his satrapy. Okay, you get it so far? Every one of these guys died a violent death except Ptolemy. Okay, they all killed each other or were killed by their soldiers. Nice family to be in, don't you think? So let's go to Daniel 11, chapter 11, verse 5. And because of the time here, I'm going to insert the interpretation of what's happening as we read. So when I'm saying things that aren't in there, that's because I'm adding it for explanation, okay? So also the king of the south. Now south, Ptolemy, and Egypt are all the same thing. South, Ptolemy, Egypt. So the king of the south, that's Ptolemy the first, shall become strong as well as one of his princes. So Seleucus I, who was made the satrap of Babylon, when Antagonus overthrew him, he had to go back to Ptolemy to be safe, and so he became one of Ptolemy's princes. So Seleucus I, and he shall gain power over him. So that means the north, Seleucus, gains power over the south. And have dominion. His dominion shall be a great dominion. So Seleucus, even though he was knocked out, he got installed back in, and he grew his kingdom to be even bigger than Ptolemy. First the south, Egypt is ascendant, and then the north. The Seleucid kingdom, the northern kingdom, the Syrian kingdom, and Antiochus. A lot of the kings in the north are named Antiochus. North, Seleucid, Antiochus, Syria, all the same thing. Ptolemy, south, Egypt, all the same thing. Okay, so that's how he became one of his princes and then became great. So verse 6. So at the end of some years, they shall join forces for the king, daughter of the king of the south shall go to the king of the north to make an agreement. So what happened was, now we're into the next generation. 
Bernice is the daughter of Ptolemy II. And so she was sent to the king of the north, who is now Antiochus II, to make an agreement. So the agreement they made was Bernice would, would marry Antiochus, and then their son would be king over both kingdoms. So now they're trying to reunite the kingdom again. But she shall not retain the power of her authority, and neither he nor his authority shall stand, but she shall be given up. So here's what happened to Bernice. Antiochus II was already married to a lady named Laodicea. And Laodicea arranged to have Bernice and her husband murdered. So they did not stand. And their agreement did not stand. So the agreement. So she shall be given up. She was killed by Laodicea, who was Antiochus II's existing wife before the agreement, with those who brought her, and with him who begot her, and with him who strengthened her in these times. Everybody's killed. So that's what that is. All right, so verse 7. But from a branch of her roots, one shall arise in his place. Aren't these pronouns awesome? So the branch of her roots, her is Bernice, the one that was killed, the one that came from Egypt to, to go up to Syria. So it's her roots. And that's her brother. And that turns out to be Ptolemy III, Ptolemy, Egypt, South. So arise in his place who shall come with an army, enter the fortress of the king of the north, and deal with them, and prevail. And he shall also carry their gods captive to Egypt. So here's the only place where we get something besides a pronoun, or north or south, which is kind of a pronoun. So we know for sure the south is Egypt. So that's, that's one anchor that we've got. And uh, with their princes and their precious articles of silver and gold, and he shall continue more years than the king of the north. So what happened was Ptolemy III was not happy that his uh, sister got murdered. And so he invaded... Syria, and in doing so, won a great victory and looted them and took all the goodies back to the south. Verse 9, also the king of the north shall come to the kingdom of the, of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. Now this one's real interesting because the commentaries say, we don't know what event this was. It apparently wasn't significant enough for secular history to record it, which is kind of amazing because we know enough about this era where everything else in here, they can say, oh yeah, that's clear that that's what that is. And there doesn't seem to be any dispute about this. The main dispute tends to be about whether this was actually written before all these events happened or not. That's, that's where the liberals have to camp because this is so specific and so clear as to what's going on. So far... God is just telling them, hey, here's what's going to happen. Boom, 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 boom. And it all happened just like he said. Okay, verse 10. However, his sons shall stir up strife and assemble a multitude of great forces. And one shall certainly come and overwhelm and pass through. Then he shall return to his fortress and stir up strife. So this his and her and him and they is Seleucus III and Antiochus III. Antiochus III, they're both northern kings. So Seleucid North, Antiochus North. So Seleucus III and Antiochus III, called the Great, they're coming against Egypt. Now we're all the way up to 219 B.C. So Alexander dies in 323. So we're 219. We're about 100 years later now. About, boom, we're popping along. Verse 5 to verse 10. We've gone 100 years. Then the king of the south shall be moved with rage, south, that's Egypt, and go out and fight with him and with the king of the north, who shall muster a great multitude, but the multitude shall be given into the hand of his enemy. So here's what happens here. Seleucus II died in 226 B.C., but his sons, Seleucus III and Antiochus III, called the Great, continued the wars with the Ptolemies. So that's stir up strife in verse 10. 
Seleucus III was murdered after a brief three-year reign. Of course. What, what, other, what else do you do? You murder people, right? And his brother Antiochus III came to power. He was called the Great because of his military successes. And in the time period between 219 and 218 BC, he campaigned in Phoenicia and Palestine, so Israel and, and Lebanon area, part of the Ptolemaic Empire at that time. So at this point, Israel is under the south. It's under Egypt. So that's returned to the king of the south's fortresses in verse 10. So then in response, Ptolemy IV launched a counterattack. So both armies were really large. According to Polybius, Ptolemy's forces consisted of 70,000 infantry, 5,000 cavalry, and 73 elephants. Wouldn't that be cool to watch? Whereas Antiochus' army had 62,000 infantry, 6,000 cavalry, and 102 elephants. When the battle ended in 217 BC, Ptolemy had won a great victory over the Syrians at Raphia, which is in Israel. And it, so that's given into his hand. So the king of the south's enemies given into his hand. So Egypt won the great victory. So verse 12. So when he, this is Ptolemy, has taken away the multitude, his heart will be lifted up and he will cast down tens of thousands, but he will not prevail. For the king of the north will return and muster a multitude greater than the former, that means more elephants, and shall certainly come at the end of some years with a great army and much equipment. So because of this victory, Ptolemy's heart was filled with pride or lifted up, and the Egyptian army had slaughtered tens of thousands of the Syrian troops in the battle. There's one historian said that Antiochus III lost 17,000 soldiers. That's a lot of soldiers. Yet, Ptolemaic supremacy was not to continue. So at this point in the chapter, we have a switch, and dominance starts shifting from the Ptolemies to the Seleucids. So Ptolemies are dominant for about 100 years, and then it starts shifting to the Seleucids, the north. Seleucid, north, Syrian. Ptolemy, Egypt, south. And then approximately 15 years later, so 202 B.C., Alexander would have died in 323 B.C., so we're about 120 years after all this drama starts. Antiochus III again invaded the Ptolemaic territories with a huge army. The occasion for this invasion was the death of Ptolemy IV and the crowning of his young son, who was only like five years old. Okay, so you got a five-year-old king, what do you do? You invade. So Antiochus III took invasion, full invasion, the opportunity, and ta attacked Phoenicia and Palestine. So if you're Israel at this time, I don't know what this like. Oh, here they come again. You know, they're going to be... I don't know if they went out on the hills and watched them. I don't know how this worked. So verse 14. Now in those times, many shall rise up against the king of the south. Also violent men of your people. So we're, to, we're you know, this is Gabriel speaking to Daniel. So he's saying your people are actually going to get involved at this point. And they shall exalt themselves in fulfillment of the vision, but they shall fall. So the king of the north shall come and build a siege mound and take a fortified city, and the forces of the south shall not withstand him. Even his choice troops have no strength to resist. So what's happening here, this is the point at which now the nativist movement starts to take hold in Egypt. So remember, these are all Greeks running Egypt, running Syria, and they're running people that aren't Greek. And so the Egyptians are like, you know, we, we're kind of tired of having Greek rulers. Let's have our own rulers. So there's an uprising. And some of Antiochus's vassals are over there. Yeah, yeah, stirring it up. Okay, so that, that's the first part of this. And the vision that's being fulfilled apparently is this vision. And then some of the Israelites would rebel or exalt themselves against Egypt in fulfillment of this vision. And evidently the prophecy that's here, but without success. 
So it reads literally, but they will fall. What happened here is General Scopus of the Egyptian forces punished the leaders of of Jerusalem and Judah who rebelled against the Ptolemaic government. In uh, verse 15, General Scopus engaged the Syrian forces at the Battle of Panium, which is near Caesarea Philippi. It's called Bonius or Panius because they had an altar to Pan. They're a temple to Pan, the Greek god Pan. And that's where Peter said, Thou art the Christ, when Jesus said, You know, who do you say I am? So right in there. And in 199 BC, so Scopus was there and suffered severe losses. And then he retreated to Sidon on the Phoenician coast. And Antiochus, Antiochus North, Syrian, forces pursued the Egyptian and besieged Sidon. And General Scopus finally surrendered in 198 BC. So Sidon's a coastal city, Tyre and Sidon, and it's where Lebanon is today, just north of Israel. So verse 16, I told you I was going to have to go fast to get this all going in. So this is a NASCAR event here. Verse 16, so he who comes against him. So this is this he is Antiochus III still. So Antiochus the Great. Shall do according to his own will and no one shall stand against him. He shall stand in the glorious land. That's Israel. Which with destruction in his power, which likely means he has the power to do whatever he wants to, which is important because his son Antiochus IV is going to be the one that does the abomination of desolations. He, Antiochus III, shall also set his face to enter with the strength of his whole kingdom and upright ones with him, thus shall he do. He shall give him, the daughter of women, to destroy it, but she shall not stand with him or before him. What is this? So what happened was Antiochus III had a daughter named Cleopatra. Now, you've got to be careful with Cleopatra because there's seven of them. There's Cleopatra the first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh. Okay, so Cleop- this is the first Cleopatra, and her job was to go marry the Ptolemy that was on the throne at that time and seduce him into submission and corrupt him so that he would you know, be vulnerable to Antiochus. And so that's the idea of to corrupt him. So she, he's trying to corrupt her. But instead, she was actually loyal to her husband, so she did not get corrupted. So verse 18, after this, he, Antiochus III, as we're still talking about, shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall take many. But a ruler, which is going to be up Rome now, Rome enters the picture, shall bring the reproach against them to an end, and with the reproach removed, he shall turn back on him. So Rome defeated them in Turkey. That's what they're talking about there. Then he shall turn his face toward the fortress of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and not be found. This is Antiochus III's defeat and end. Having vanquished the Egyptians in 197 B.C., or or shortly thereafter, Antiochus turned his attention to the coastlands, which is the islands or countries around the Mediterranean. And after Antiochus had some initial success, Lucius Cornelius Scipio Asiaticus, like that name, he's a ruler, uh, or NASB translates commander, he was sent against him by the Roman government. And in 191 B.C., the Romans, fighting with their Greek allies, routed the Syrians at Thermopylae and forced them to withdraw from Greece and flee to Asia Minor. Then 30,000 Roman troops pursued Antiochus into Asia and defeated his much larger army of 70,000 at a battle in Smyrna. And then 188 B.C., the Romans forced Antiochus to sign the Treaty of Apamea. Polybius reported that the Syrian king was ordered to surrender territory, much of his military force, 20 hostages, one of whom was Antiochus IV. 
which is going to be Epiphanes, the guy that does the abomination and desolation, hang on to that, and pay a heavy indemnity to Rome. So now they're under tribute to Rome. So Antiochus has gone from like the biggest guy in the Middle East to i got to pay tribute to Rome. So after this humiliating defeat, Antiochus returned to his country where he was killed by an angry mob in 187. So at least he wasn't killed by another ruler. But in desperate need of funds, particularly those required to meet the indemnity payments to Rome, the Syrian ruler pillaged the temple of Zeus, but was killed in the process evidently by citizens defending their sanctuary. So now, verse 20, his successor, who's going to be Seleucus IV, will send out a tax collector, a guy named Heliodorus, to maintain the royal splendor. In other words, to pay the tribute and still keep their lifestyle up. In a few years, however, he, Seleucus IV, will be destroyed, yet not in anger or battle. So what happened was Heliodorus poisoned Seleucus IV, hoping to take the throne after a short rule. It's kind of gross, isn't it? Now, is anybody feeling like, our politics aren't that bad? (laughs) This teaching will continue in the following episode. Thanks for listening to the Yellow Balloons podcast. If you want more information on adopting a God-centered perspective, visit our website at yellowbloons.net. And if you have any questions related to what you just heard, we would love to hear from you. Please email us at contact at yellowbloons.net. Thanks for listening. 